We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom right here on the Lions of Liberty Podcast Network. And really excited today to bring you an awesome interview with a guy who has overcome a lot of obstacles in his life uh, to find success in creating and starting his own business. So we'll talk about all that. I'll introduce my guest in just a moment here. Uh, Before I do that, just want to remind you all that, uh, first of all, if you're listening to this show on your podcasting app uh, from your little cell phone in your pocket, be sure to subscribe to the show so you get it delivered to your phone um, every single week. And also, if you really like what you're listening to, consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty or on locals, lionsofliberty.locals.com. With this support, we're going to give you um, some extra bonus content in return, as well as some other goodies there, depending on what level you join at. So check those out. All right, let's introduce today's guest. My guest today is Nick Freed. Um, Nick has a really interesting backstory, which similar to a lot of the guests I had on back when the show was called Felony Friday, where you really learn about the corruption faced in the criminal justice system. A lot of people don't know um, just how really unjust our criminal justice system is. And he ended up serving, you know, really a significant amount of time uh, on federal charges, uh, basically because he would not um, rat out people. Um, and his story is is one that is unique in, in some ways that I haven't seen before. So we'll get into that. He's gotten to the other side of it. Like I said, he's found success. He has his own cookie business uh, nearby up in central Pennsylvania. It's called Inside Out Cookies, nearby to me, I should say, in uh, in Pittsburgh. So, Nick, welcome to Finding Freedom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. And, uh, you know, like I was talking about there in the uh, introduction, you know, I've, I've, intru- I've interviewed quite a few people, probably hundreds of people um, who have, you know, similar stories to you, um, really nonviolent crimes where when entering the, the criminal justice system, people who would hear about this from the outside would be really astounded about what you went through and uh, you know how much time you, you ended up serving. Um, so we'll get into the specifics of that, but like before we get into that part of your story, I think a good place to start is like to turn back the clock to um, you know before you were ever arrested, before you were ever charged, and just kind of set the frame around you know what your what your life was like back then, where you were living, um, what you were doing. All right. Well, I mean. My, my crime lasted about 13 years. <laughs> so, uh, I was, I was certainly not, uh, a law abiding citizen caught up in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. I, I definitely, this is unlike some people who, uh, may have caught a charge based on, uh, a drug addiction led them into some things. I, I definitely made a choice to, to break the law a lot. Um, so at the outset, I would, I would definitely want to make clear that I, 
at no point ever thought that I didn't deserve to be punished for committing crimes. I definitely right. earned my, my trip. Um, but with all that said, the crime that I was doing yielded quite a bit of money. So I did live fairly well. Um, I was not, uh, living in squalor or wanting for, uh, wanting for the basics. Everything that I did to break the law was to have a pretty extravagant lifestyle. And I, and I did. Um, but living that lifestyle and especially I've described it as, uh, with unearned wealth, so to speak, like I, I made a lot of money and I didn't really have to do a whole lot to get it. And so therefore I had no respect for, for, uh, the, the money. I just kind of squandered it on stupid things. And, and basically my entire life was a reflection of that. I was just kind of a, a goofy guy with too much money, too much freedom and too much time on his hands doing whatever, whatever the hell I wanted to do all the time. Um, and of course that doesn't bring out the best in people very often. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so my, 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 my apartment, of course, I didn't buy a house because I couldn't. I didn't pay taxes for a long time. Um, uh, was was pretty nice. I had a, a, a nice vehicle and a motorcycle and a, a truck and a car. Uh, um, uh, I, I lived fairly well uh, as far as material things go. Now, living outside of the law for so long, you you can't really possibly be just a regular person like everybody else. Um and so I did have addiction problems. I did have a significant attitude problem with authority or what I seem to view as uh, uh, my my uh, outsider status from what every other law abiding person did. Because we myself and the people that I ran around with, we just we broke laws every single day. So it was kind of nothing uh, at a certain point living that way. You you sort of fall back on whatever your own standards lead you to believe is acceptable as far as what you will and won't do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, cer- I certainly had conscientious parents who taught me, you know, the, the, the core foundations of right and wrong. So I definitely wasn't out hurting harm, directly harming people or things like that. But uh, I think some people probably thought the way I was living was a lot better than it actually was because in- internally I was a very big mess. Mm-hmm. Um uh, towards the end there, I was, I was washing down handfuls of painkillers, uh, every day just to wake up and function. And, and, you know, of course this was the, the beginning of the, op- what they called the opioid epidemic. And before, right. before they made stricter laws about those things, those were very easy to get. Um, and that, that definitely played a very big part of the choices that I made that caused me to be caught for the crime that for so long I didn't get caught doing, um, where did you live during that uh, that point in time? I was in Dallas, Texas. Um, well, I grew up here in Pennsylvania. I finished high school here in State College, although I most of my childhood was uh, in Harrisburg. Mm-hmm. And my mother was from Dallas, Texas originally. So when I decided I wanted to leave Pennsylvania, I went to Dallas, Texas. And I, I, I was there for 20 years. So, so let's talk a little bit about you. You kind of alluded to um, you know, the business that you were running, and uh, can, can you can you share um, what that was? Sure, yeah. What you were doing? Yeah, I made I made fake IDs, um, uh, and that that was ninety nine percent for college students. I mm-hmm. I kind of got caught up in that uh, when I was much younger. 
yeah, I was, I think I was probably 23 or thereabouts when I started doing that. The girl that I was dating was not 21 yet. Uh, I had very little money. I was doing construction. Um, and I wanted to get her into bars to go out with me. And we found some guy who said he could make fake IDs and, uh, uh I couldn't afford one. <laughs> so, uh, he told me if we could sell a, a quantity of them to her friends and she was under 21, he would give us hers for free. So I did that, collected all these people's money. And he took all the money and told me what I could go do with myself and kept it. <laughs> so now I'm out. Uh, I'm out all those people's money. So I was like, well, hell, maybe I can just learn how to do this myself. And I did. And in my, my usual uh, style of overachieving and overdoing everything, I became very, very good at it. And mm. I quit college because I was making so much money. I didn't know what to do with it all. So I continued doing that as long as it remained lucrative. And and it was. <laughs> um and it wasn't uh, it wasn't just a small quantity. I mean, it was in excess of twenty thousand of them over the years. Um, no. Easily, I didn't keep good records, but that's that's a pretty conservative estimate for sure. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure there's no problem finding demand for something like that when you're. I mean, when you're going no. around colleges, so yeah, that's uh, no item and high demand. Yeah, I would I would turn in the spring or fall semesters. I would have uh, it would take me about a month and a half to get people their IDs because it was working every day. I had so many I couldn't make them fast enough. It was mm-hmm. a very in demand product for sure. Yeah, was there a point in time during that where you thought, well, you know, if I got caught doing this, I could end up, you know, in trouble here? Was that something that that crossed your mind? Were you pretty? you know, conscious about that? Were, were you careful with, with, you know, how you, who you talked to or how you communicated? Yeah. So in, in a way, yes. It, at, at first I was such a paranoid mess all the time. And ultimately I was worried about all the wrong things, you know, um, uh, being hyper vigilant of things that really weren't ultimately a threat. But the longer I did that, the more I got accustomed to, you know, one thing leads to another. It's kind of like the, the, the first time you kiss a girl, that's like, oh, wow, that's a really big deal. Well, the third time, it's kind of like, eh, well, what's next? Okay, mm-hmm. well, you, you sell a little dime bag, and that's a huge big deal, and you're scared to death. And then fast forward two years, and you're driving a pickup truck load of weed down the highway, and they think nothing of it. It's sort of the same as that. You know, like you, you break some laws, and you stress it, and then it's kind of like, okay, well, it's been fine all this time, and you relax a little bit. Now, I was I was cautious about making sure nobody knew where I lived, because some some people that sort of gave me advice along the way. So, you know, don't ever keep anything illegal in your house and, you know, don't, you know, don't talk on your own phone, things like that, that I was definitely very cautious about. But uh, um, it became normal after a while too, very much so. Mm-hmm. So you, you talked a little bit about, um, obviously you're not filing tax returns on this. This is an all cash business. So w- did you have yeah, like another yeah. job on the side or... I worked at nightclubs a lot, but I didn't even care if they paid me. That was something that got me out of the house. Um, mm-hmm. There were I, I was very very into weightlifting and stuff, and so there were a lot of times where I wouldn't drink uh, just because I was training or trying to bulk up. And I, but I still wanted to go out on the weekends, and going out to a club and not drinking is kind of weird and creepy. So so that would give me a reason to be there. Um, also, you know, of course, it's it's not a bad environment to be around. You know. Um, Twenty uh, some year old guy in very good shape standing at a nightclub. That's not a bad place to be. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, that was the only job when that I would do. Um, 
And again, like they could pay me or not. I really didn't care. That was just something that I enjoyed doing. But yeah, that was it. I filed the first tax return of my entire life last year. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Not so, <laughs> so let's get into the story of like when things went sideways, you know, how, how did it happen? Did you have an inkling that you were being investigated? Um, no, I had no idea. No idea. Um, I had, I had had near close encounters a few times and I had been arrested for a fake ID charge, like two, maybe a year and a half prior to that. But it was a very, very weak case by a, a, a college, uh, college police department, like the university police kind of thing. And, uh, it, it wasn't going to go anywhere. So I wasn't really stressing it, but, uh, no, I was just carrying on through my day. Now, of course, the, the day that I got arrested, I was very much drunk driving around doing random errands related to it. If I hadn't been caught that day, I would have been pulled over for that or something else probably pretty quick because things were going downhill. Mm. Um, as far as my mental state and things like that, when I was not doing well, um, uh, but I was just, checking a PO box. I think something that I'd done a, a gazillion times. I, I, I didn't have my mail sent to my own apartment. My apartment was in somebody else's name. The utilities were in somebody else's name. Um, so all my, all my mail went to a PO box and I also had another PO box at that same place that I opened with a fake ID for things that I didn't want coming to my name. And so did a buddy of mine. Um, I stayed fairly, fairly far away from drug dealer people because they get caught constantly, but I did use steroids. And so I met a lot of people who also sold steroids because they needed fake IDs to get their, to get their chemicals and things shipped to them. So I encountered a lot of people like that. Um, and a buddy of mine needed a package that was sent to his PO box, which happened to be at the same place where I got my mail, asked me to pick it up. And in checking his, his mailbox for him, which was full of steroid chemicals. Um, I didn't know that the department of Homeland security had been tracking a package addressed to the fake name at that box. And when they waited to see who picked it up, it was me that day. Um, but it was from so, your, from your friend's PO box. Yeah, it was a, it was a package that came in from Hong Kong. So it was a, it was a federal, a federal thing, you know, of course a, a package of illegal chemicals from China is going to be, that's not going to be local cops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, so I I went to the counter and asked for his package, checked my own mail, and then got arrested. So now I've got a it's it turned into a pretty bad day because I've got a pocket full of fake IDs. Um, I'm hammered drunk, barely remember getting arrested, and mm. got a firearm in the car. And now they're asking me for the name of my best friend, who is the owner of this package, and I really don't want to tell them. Um, mm. hmm. Tough tough day for sure. Yeah, so, so you said you picked up your mail. So when you when you say, when you say you had a fake IDs in your pocket, that's what you just picked up out of the mail, or you just had oh, them no, in your no, pocket I was, anyway. I was on my way to, yeah, I was on my way to deliver them. Uh, oh, that's okay. something I did pretty much every day. Now, m most of the bulk of what I did, I would I would never see the people. Um, I get get email. The orders would be emailed to me, make them, FedEx them to the to wherever they were going. It was usually fraternity. Uh, fraternity and sorority people would take the orders of a whole bunch of people and collect mm -hmm. them. Um, but some of them I did and, and having one in your pocket is enough. You know, it wasn't like a massive order, but um, definitely enough to, to warrant a criminal charge for sure. So, so I'm assuming the officers find, you know, all the fake IDs in your pocket, then you 
you yeah. get arrested and uh, what, what happens yeah. from there? So I get, uh, the, the agent that arrested me was what they call a TFO was a task force officer. So he was actually a local police department detective, but he was under, I, I don't know if contract is the right word or, uh, du- I guess double employed in some, in some sense with, uh, the department, of, uh, department of Homeland Security. And then also he did his normal duties with the local, the local police department there. Right. Um, so they took me to the Dallas police station or headquarters, whatever it's called. And, uh, I was, I guess, interviewed there. Um, really all that they wanted to know was one, why did I have a pocket full of fake, uh, driver's licenses and, and, and cop IDs and who the package was going to. He, he seemed to be more interested in who the package was going to because as he said it, that was the case that he was assigned to investigate. So really the, the focus of the questions, um, was, okay, well, who does this package belong to? Where, where can we find? It was pretty obvious that it wasn't mine because there were tech, me- text messages in my phone directing me to go get it and telling me the tracking number. So they're, they're mm-hmm. saying, okay, well, who is this person? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let this other stuff, you know, be a smaller deal. If you tell me this person, I'm like, no, I don't know anything. You know, um, I had dealt with local police officers before who were not quite, not quite as savvy as federal agents are, um, not really knowing the resources that they had at their disposal. That little line that I was doing was not going to get very far and it didn't. Um, they, they weren't hearing that. So, um, as they were asking me where I lived and I was telling them to go F themselves, they walked in the room and showed me a picture on their phone of my front door, basically saying, we know the answer to these questions. We're going we're gonna to get this stuff. And that was pretty much, uh, uh, uh noti- noticed that it was pretty much over. Mm-hmm. So at that point in time, you know, when, when you realize there's really not a way out or it doesn't look like there's a way out, um, what was, what was your state of mind like? You know, in, in a way, and, and I even said this in the interview room, there, there was a small part of me that was very, very relieved because I had been, I had been living in a manner that was not consistent with my own personal values for a very long time. And even though on the surface that wouldn't be apparent, the, 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 the part of me that, that my parents instilled in me as a child really knew you were doing wrong every single day and nothing good is ever going to come of this. And even as arrogant as that much money can make you subconsciously, you always know it's not real and it's always one second away from all being taken away. It's not like you built a big business and saved up a fortune and you're a successful person. Now it's all, it's all pretend. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though I knew that, all of the things that I felt were important and that I'd put together were about to go away. The fact that I no longer had to lie every single day about everything that I did was actually kind of a relief in a sense. Um, I didn't really realize the full effect of that until a couple years into my prison sentence when the, 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 the real like, direct feeling of loss went away because like, you know, I had all these fancy things and I had a little bit of status or so I thought, um, and all that stuff is gone. And now I'm just this poor bum, <laughs> you know, just another inmate. But, um, once I got back to really who I am and who I was intended to be as a person and as a man, um, 
it was it was really good that that happened. Um, it, yeah, it's it's interesting. You're, you're definitely not the first person I've heard say that that you know a sense of relief when uh, you know the walls end up closing in because you know I I, I probably I, I I would assume you know I don't want to put wor- words in your mouth, but I would assume during that point in time in your life, I mean, you said you were you were you were drinking a lot and you were you know taking painkillers. You know, there was something about your life that you you were trying to to silence you know the the noise that was you know probably that your internal you know internal dialogue um, was telling you that what you were doing wasn't right. Um, Absolutely, and and I don't I don't think people who can relate to that you know the internal dialogue is telling you this, but you don't want to hear it because if you hear it and really process it, that means you have to give away all these things that you're coveting, yeah. all the, the fancy cars that you really can't afford and flashy clothes that you really can't afford. And the thought of going out and getting a job like everybody else, oof, that's very scary. So I'll just silence the, the inner dialogue yeah. uh, because it's easier in a way. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the, uh, the indictment. So there were a couple different parts to the indictment, right? There was uh, you know, there was the, right. the steroid aspect. There was the, uh, the fake ID aspect and during this time, right, they're still trying to get you to uh, to cooperate, right, and, and provide names. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the those two aspects, and then the third one um, for sure. So, I uh, I didn't want to, for a number of different reasons, I didn't want to give up the people that they were wanting. You know, so the the, the primary focus of that was. Okay, well, who's this person that, that is responsible for this package? Now, this person had been my closest friend for a long time. And it would be very easy to say, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just serve them up. Um, and then I can go home. But I already knew that what I was doing was one, wrong and did it anyway. And two, completely my idea. Nobody talked me into it or co- mm-hmm. coerced me into it. Uh, and my buddy was sitting on his sofa doing what he had chosen to do. And the the gravity of actually going through the process of saying, okay, this is the person and here's his address and here's everything about him. Here's all his vulnerabilities that you want to know. And I'll give you these things so that me... A person who already knows he's a scumbag can just go back out and walk around on the street like nothing ever happened. I, I can't imagine what that would feel like. Uh, and it certainly was not the right thing to do. That maybe, maybe from a police officer's standpoint, okay, you're taking a criminal off the street. Well, I'm taking a criminal off the street and letting myself go down for my crimes. <laughs> um, and this is not, it's not as though this person that they were looking for was responsible for killing people or, acts of terrorism. I mean, as far as steroid dealers go, he was pretty low level. It wasn't a whole lot of stuff. Um, it was just one more case for these guys to get under their belt. And I didn't really want to serve up a person who'd been really, really loyal and like a brother to me just to dig myself out of my own bullshit. Um, it seemed like it, this is time for me to deal with my bullshit and I'm gonna, um, yeah. And it's not like so there's any, there, there's any justice in that. Cause just like you were saying there, like, if you if you give up your friend, then you're you're 
sort of getting out to a certain ex- getting out of to a certain extent your your crime, right? So it's right, the, yeah. the justice system isn't working better. It's not like you're you were impeding justice in any way. No, and I mean I don't think. I mean legality and morality are sometimes very uh, mm-hmm. not not as as closely related as we would like to think that they are. Um, sure, I could I could lighten my burdens by putting some on someone else. We're just shifting a little mm-hmm. bit, but um, I'll take a heavier load in exchange for someone else taking none, or we both take smaller, you know, because the very, the very first thing that they're going to do to him is ask him for information about people that he knows and, and, and on down the line. And all that collateral consequence will be on me too, because as of right, as of that moment, none of those people were in any trouble whatsoever. Certainly they would have been caught at some point, but that's not something that I can think about at that time, right. you know? Um, and I would be lying if I said, I didn't think a lot about it. Um, they gave me 10 months to sit and think about it and try to change my mind and all that. And, and talk about that. So you, you're indicted. How do you get from that indictment to then, essentially sitting by yourself for 10 months. So where, where did they move you to? Yeah. So I went, I went to Lou Starrett, which is the Dallas County jail. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess it's on par with every other County jail. It's just kind of a terrible place. <laughs> um, and uh, I didn't really know what was going on. Now the, they, my, my people got me a lawyer. Um, the first one that they assigned me was a public defender. And I, I'm sure he's good at something, but I don't think lawyering is one of them. He didn't seem very bright. Um, but uh, once once we got a paid lawyer, he came in and saw me and I said, okay, well, look, everything they're charging me with is things that I did. So can I just plead guilty and move on? He said, no, 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 We don't do it that way. We're, we're going to plead not guilty. I'm like, okay, but they're not charging me with anything that I didn't do. I can't say I'm not guilty. Oh, we have to wait. This is just the way the game is played. Okay, cool. So as soon as I plead not guilty they transferred me to a federal holding facility. Now there's, there is actually a federal kind of equivalent of a County jail where people wait for pretrial. And as far as County jail goes, it's actually pretty nice. I mean, you get a lot of rec time. The food is the same food that the federal prison gets. It's a big meal and commissary and everything like that. But when you plead not guilty, you don't get to go to that place. You go to a hellhole, real far away. Uh, that doesn't have much of anything. And so that's where I went. Um, and I don't think my lawyer even knew that I was there for a couple of weeks because we couldn't get a hold of him. Um, he said he went to meet me and I wasn't at the jail. I'm like, well, hey, buddy, I'm not really uh, – I can't really do a whole lot about that. Uh, but that was the place where everybody went. And it was uh, – it wasn't hell on earth, but it was pretty awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I sat there and I, I had very – very little interaction with my attorney. He said this waiting game, this process. Um, but every time I did speak to him, it was like, okay, well, they, they want this information. They want this, they want that. Um, and I kept telling him, no, I really don't want to. I mean, the, I, once, once I got in there, I was able to look at some of the, the law books, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm intelligent enough to read federal code and understand it a little bit. And, and I looked up and the guidelines for my crime were like 10 to 14 months. You know, certainly for 20,000 fake IDs, I'm not going to get a guideline sentence, but double that two years, that's worth the millions of dollars that I made doing my crime. That's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that consequence. And so I 
I went with that. You know, let me just plead guilty and go. No, we have to wait. We have to wait. Now they're doing this. Now they're doing that. And, um, uh, yeah, so I sat and wait. I, I, I was, I was not in solitary or administrative segregation as they, they technically call it, uh, for 10 months straight, but in and out, um, I was in a single cell for most of the time there, um, which can be nice, but it's, it's not great. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and waiting. And so about, about nine months after that, I was laying in my cell, um, big full beard. Cause I couldn't get a razor looking like a lumberjack or something. And, and I, at like 4am that they knock on the door and say, Hey, yeah, you have court, like court for what? I don't know. And they, they drug me in and took, put me in a really nice room in the federal building. And there's, uh, three different agencies of federal investigators there and the prosecutor, my lawyer sitting there and they're like, okay, well, we have this deal. We want this information. And, uh, this is what we're looking for. And I learned new terms like actionable intelligence and, uh, uh, all these fancy phrases that they were hitting me with telling me essentially, uh, we, we want your buddy. This is the, we, we opened this case and we need to close it. So they said, you either take ownership for what was in the package that you were trying to pick up, or you assign that ownership to somebody else. And we're telling you right now that if you take ownership of that package, we're going to attribute a quantity of weight of steroids for every package that has ever been delivered to that post office box and just assume that it's the same as what you try to pick up that day. It's called ghost dope and that's fine. Mm-hmm. So now, now your guideline will go up to about six years. And let me just, ju- let me certainly- just, ju- just jump in there for a minute because that, so a lot of people will, will hear that about ghost dope and how that works. Yeah. This is what they do. I mean, I, I've multiple people have been inter- interviewed on this show and talked about the exact same thing. People are blown away by it and they should be because it's absurd. Can you imagine just, yeah. just assuming that every single package that came to, to one address, just assume it's all drugs or it's all, you know, whatever I- illegal material it's, it's just complete insanity. Yeah. It's, it's totally, right. it's, it's yeah, total, totally unjust. Yeah. It's the whole, you know, and I, I think, you know, and I, I would want to be this way too. I mean, like I'm, I'm not anti-police. I'm not anti-justice system. The world would be very scary without these people. The world would look like prisons do. The, mm-hmm. the, the scariest people call all the shots and everybody else who wants to live a normal life can't. The, the, the police and the justice system are what stop that from happening. But the, the police are not supposed to be just one more in a series of criminals doing whatever they want in order to reach that, that goal. Um, the interaction of the, the way the police and the judges and the prosecutors all function is a big mess. Um, and there seems to be a whole culture of a criminal justice culture where one hand washes the other. Uh, they take care of each other simply because mm-hmm. they're who they are. So if a prosecutor says this thing needs to happen or is true, then a judge will by default do that thing because they're on the same team. In actuality, the judge is supposed to check the prosecutor when necessary in, in the same way that they check a, a defense attorney or, or a defendant. Um, but it doesn't really work that way. So if a prosecutor walks up in front of a judge and says, well, we're, we, we have good reason to believe that this, amount of drugs existed, then they'll back it up. Sure. Okay. I support that. Um, and sometimes that's probably true. Um, 
in this case, I have no idea what was in all the packages that went to that PO box because I had only ever checked it two times in my entire life out of like 15 or 20 packages that went there. Yeah, and, that, and that's the element anything. that's a little bit unique about your scenario with the ghost dope compared to others that I've heard before is because it wasn't even coming to you. That's, that's right. I mean, that's totally yeah. it's even another level of ridiculous. Sure. Now, of course, legally, I, I, I admit, yes, I'm checking. I'm checking the box. I knew there was mm-hmm. something illegal in there. So it's definitely on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as knowledge of prior things, I haven't the biggest idea. Yeah. It could have been bags of sand. It could have been bombs in those boxes. I have no idea. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly not the quantity of it. But um, but yeah, the ghost dope thing, that was, that was a new term that I learned uh, as well. And I certainly, you know, the the quantities that they were talking about with me were nothing compared to the, the 17 years I had heard people got for things that they had never even seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a conspiracy where the only evidence was the testimony of a person charged with yeah. – uh, a life sentence uh, a drug offense saying, okay, well, I got it from this guy over here. And this guy over here is like, uh, what, what do you mean? Plead guilty to what? And I, I have, I had a friend that this happened to. He got a 17 year sentence based mm-hmm. on the testimony of somebody else and nothing else. Search the guy's mm-hmm. house, found no drugs, but ghost doped him in those 17 year prison sentence. And that's, it happens every day. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. So, so you're in this meeting with these different agencies you're learning new terms and you yeah. know, really you, you got to be totally speechless about what's, what's being uh, said to you here. So um, what, what ends up happening coming out of that meeting? Yeah, this was the new one that I heard too. So like when some of, some of the questions they asked me, I legitimately didn't know the answer. And anytime I would say, I don't know, they would say either we'll tell you what we, what you don't know, or you don't know what you don't know. And it's, I heard a lot of people say that they were told the same thing, basically saying, we're going to tell you what we want you to say. You know, well, we need, we want this person and we'll tell you how much drugs that you saw them have. Oh, okay. What is this real life? Like this actually happened? Like, I thought that that was something that happened in like these third world countries in North Korea. Yeah. You give up your friends and we'll let you go. Wait, this is happening here. Like I, I remember civics class in junior high and high school talking about all these wonderful American justice for all things. What, are you telling me that's all been all this time? That wasn't real. Wow. Okay. That's a big shock. Uh, yeah, but definitely, a, a, a an awakening moment to letting me know what was really in store for me, you know, cause just sitting and stewing on it for 10 months in a prison cell is one thing, but actually talking to these people who are very important people telling you, yeah, this is going to happen to you and there's nothing you can do about it. And the, my, and my lawyer sitting next to me kind of seeming like he's on board with it. Um, difficult day for sure. So I'm assuming you didn't accept a plea deal that day coming no. out of there. So no, I, I had information for them, but it wasn't what they wanted. And it was definitely not complete. And, you know, there was some of the things that they were asking me, like I, my, I made IDs for, for college students and that was most of what I did, but I did encounter over the years, some, some much more serious people. I wasn't very directly uh, associated with them, but they were not the kind of people that I would just say, okay, yeah, I'll just tell you where he lives I'll tell you where he hides his stuff and tell you the, the fake names that he used when I made IDs for him. For all I knew, these people could kill me. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there were things that they were asking me that I either didn't know or didn't really feel safe after 
especially after having been lied to them over and over again up until that point. Like if you're telling me, okay, well, you're going to, you're going to give me this deal now after every promise you made to me before was, was turned out to be a lie. I, I'm certainly not going to believe you now. Um, yeah. It seems like if I do what you tell me to do, I'm going to be in, in even more trouble and more danger. Um, so I didn't know. I did not debate the deal with them and, and still thinking that, you know, I've been reading my own guidelines and calculating them all this time. I've now been down for, for the better part of a year. And if my guidelines are 10 to 14 months, I'll just wait a little bit longer and go to court and get time served and go home. Nope. <laughs> it didn't, yeah. didn't happen. So yeah, I walked out of there. Um, uh, my, my lawyer annoyed with me. Um, and I don't think that that meeting did me a whole lot of good. Um, so, so did they take you to trial after that? No. So after that, um, after that, it was, I want to say it was less than two weeks. The my, my lawyer shows up, uh, and they give me a new indictment. Um, so now, now my, my guidelines go from 10 to 14 months to 97 months uh, on the top end of that guideline. Um, and it seemed like it was directly related to my lack of cooperation because it's not like this was information they didn't know all along. It just wasn't charged. So it's kind of like, okay, well, this guy is not cooperating. So what can we do to him? Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you arrest me, you arrest me for this, this conduct and indict me for that conduct. And then you sit and wait. And now after I don't deliver what you want, your audio is starting, higher level. Your audio is starting to break up a little bit, Nick. Oh, uh, I can I can hear you good now. Yeah, it was it was just cutting in and out. I think uh, I think you're good now. The bakery's kind of out in the in the country. Yeah. Sometimes I lose my signal here, but um, yeah, it it just it seemed peculiar that after after that much time had passed, now there's this higher higher level of conduct that needs to be addressed, coinciding directly with my failure to deliver mm-hmm. what they wanted. Um. But that's what happened, you know. So, uh, pled guilty to that, and uh, I, it was. It, I had been I had been down for 15 months before I went to get sentenced. Um, wow. Yeah, but the, you know, the, the, did the, you get credit for day, for time served? Oh yeah, yeah, I got yeah. credit for it, sure. Yeah, that came off of that. I I got the 97 months um, mm-hmm. of of my guidelines, and they took 15 months off of that. So. The, the very next day after I pled guilty, they moved me from the crappy little county jail place into the nicer federal place. Now, now I'm now, now it's, it's been settled what I'm doing. They're not trying to coerce me anymore, even though they don't do that because it's illegal. But, yeah, they do. Um, yeah, yeah of, of, of course they do. Um, so so what was uh, so you ended up serving eight years. Is, is that right? I did. Yeah, I did seven on eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I got I got ninety seven months. Um, which is, which is eight years. And the remainder of that was, uh, um, spent about a month of that was spent just waiting for them to tell me where I was going to go. And then they designated me to a place in Ohio, uh, to say nothing of the fact that I think there's six federal prisons in Texas where I was, they thought none of them were suitable and shipped me off to Ohio. I think that also had something to do with the fact that I didn't cooperate, but we'll, Mm -hmm. we'll leave that be. Um, so I went to a place in Ohio and that was, 
that, that, that was an interesting experience feeling relieved to be arriving at prison because prison is way better than jail. Um, and so after having been sitting in this horrible place with nothing to do for 15 months and now I can get a job and I can go work out and I can go outside and all this stuff. That was a, a pretty interesting time. So, and there, there is where I discovered baking and cooking. Yeah. So talk um, about that a little bit. Um, we, I talked about at the top that you have, you have your own bakery now it's called inside, inside out cookies. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes here, but so how does somebody learn how to cook and bake in prison? <laughs> so there, I, being the workout guy that I was, I'm always looking to eat more protein. And so working in the kitchen is a way to do that. Although serving up slop is not the most fun job in the world either, but this particular place had a culinary arts class and it was, it worked out of a little smaller kitchen that was next to the inmate kitchen where they served all of the staff's food, all the, the, the COs and the wardens and everybody. They, they ate basically the same from the same stock warehouse stock of, of, of ingredients that the inmates mm-hmm. got, but it was prepared better in smaller batches with more seasonings and stuff like that. But the, the culinary arts class worked out of that. So the students that were in that class prepared the food that was then served to the, to the staff and then they got to eat it too. So that was a coveted spot because you got to eat really, really good while you were in there. Now that program, I think, I think it lasted either eight or 10 months. So once you were done with that, you're back in the general population eating chow hall food. But there were a certain number of guys that worked in there that were called tutors who basically taught the students that came in through the class. And I set my sights on that job as what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I met some people who had uh, who could put in a good word for me with the with the, the man who, who ran that class. And I got into it pretty – I think I might have been on the yard a month and a half before I was in that class. Very good timing. Um, I got in there and I told I told the CEO that ran it exactly what I wanted. I said, I want to work here. I want to be one of your full-time guys. And he said, okay, show me why I should hire you. And I did. Um, <laughs> I, tried, mm-hmm. I, I tried not to complain about a thing. I mopped the floor. I, I busted my ass. And the, the stars aligned somehow. Um one of the one of the guys who was uh, the full time baker baking tutor in there got fired, and that spot opened up. Um, the The baking part of that when I got there was very very slight. Um, they they would work off of uh, cake mixes, um, just basic, m- mostly pre made things. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't really have uh, the. the the man that ran it, his name's Joe, Joe Provenzano. Very, very, very good man. Uh, I could only hope to be as good a man one day as he is. Um, but, uh, he didn't really have any specialized baking knowledge, although he was a cook in the army. Um, the baking part of that never really progressed very much because nobody knew, uh, how to help to progress with it. So, um, as I, as I seem to do with everything, when I got that job, I wanted to learn every single thing that I could about it. So I ordered, the Culinary Institute of America baking textbook and some Martha Stewart cookbooks and everything about baking that I could. And whenever I would finish my, my responsibilities for the day, I would just kind of mess around with some of the techniques in the book until I got to a point where I'd worked through enough of them that I could actually make some new recipes for the program. Now we didn't have much for ingredients. Um, so I had to pick and choose things that we had enough ingredients for. But as I improved with that, all of a sudden the 
the CEOs and the staff started eating better. Uh, wow, we're getting better desserts all of a sudden. So whenever we'd get a budget, the, the, the supervisor there would buy a little bit more baking stuff. And then the next time I came around, buy a little bit more. Um, and I was at that for five years. So we, I think we would get a budget twice a year. So as, as I progressed, okay, now we have better chocolates. Now we have this. And, um, when I wanted to make, uh, bread, but we were not allowed to have yeast because people would make booze out of it, obviously. So I learned how to cultivate my own yeast and make sourdough starters. Nice. Um, and so I started making, uh, fresh bread with no yeast in the bakery. In the bakery. That's amazing. Um, I was, yeah, I wonder if that's um, the only prison that was uh, making sourdough bread from from starter. According to them, yes. Now there are there are some places that did have an actual bakery in them. That mm-hmm. actually used to be one of them, but they took it out because of budget reasons many years before I got there. Um, the no yeast thing was relatively new. Um, uh, as far as as far as that place went, but. Um, the the bakery, the the kitchen where I worked used to be the 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 compound bakery, and they they made things. But that mm-hmm. was ten fifteen years before I got there. But uh, yeah. yeah, that was definitely unique. And I I started making uh, I wanted to make pizza because um, sourdough pizza crust is great. Um, mm-hmm. But we our ovens weren't hot enough. So strangely enough, when we got our next budget, he bought a actual two deck pizza oven um, <laughs> to make sourdough crust pizzas in. Um, you know, so, would, the, so like would they come and ask you, like, hey, would they would they come and ask you, hey, what, what do you need, uh, you know, to make pizza? Or what do you need for for baking to make it better? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. He, I, I, I like to think that I improved that program quite a bit with the baking part of it, a hundred percent. I mean, it, I, I, I wrote an entire baking class to improve that, um, to where. I started getting a little bit of sideways dirty looks because I was living pretty good, you know, making all this stuff. And the, the staff was happy with me because I made all their food. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were a lot of other inmates who really wanted to be doing better things. And I, I identified that as something that I was being pretty selfish with. You know, okay, I'm, I'm taking, I'm reaping all this benefit for myself from this thing that I made. The right thing to do is to share it with other people. Now, of course, I'm an inmate. I can't do a whole, whole lot. But I did, I did talk the supervisor into letting me keep two students at a time for five weeks at a time. Um, and I wrote an, an actual curriculum to teach them more comprehensive baking, baking skills. Of course, my, my knowledge was limited to what I learned from the textbooks and on my own, but mm-hmm. it, was, it was certainly better than nothing whatsoever. Um, so I would take in the students, um, uh, go through, go through the skills in the order that I learned them. And, uh, Within within the constraints of the the limitations that we had based on some you know equipment that we had or or didn't have, mm-hmm. um, and that was a that was quite a unique experience because I I actually would wake up every day in prison and could not wait to get to work. I can't wait to get out of bed and get into work and learn something new or do something new or actually show up and make some things that people that would otherwise hate me would come and thank me for. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen in prison. No, um, no, and I think that it should. Um, there's, there's no reason that programs like that couldn't be put into every prison because they have, they have trade things there. But from what I saw, they were all pretty much fake. I mean, they would, they would go through the motions, have you watch some videos, but as far as actually teaching somebody, hey, here's a thing that 
no matter what you did before, this is something you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, it, okay, it's baking bread, it's baking cupcakes, whatever, but it's something that you can learn, that you can make, that you can be proud of. You can go home and actually do something with and say, hey, I didn't go to prison and just rot and get high and play cards. I went and I learned a thing. And here, let me show you the thing. Let me let me show you how, how I can take this thing and become a better person with it. Um, I think there's a need for that in prisons and it's not filled because there's so much just apathy and, and, and bitterness on, on the part of the staff, largely you know, inmates mm-hmm. too, some, but um, I saw some staff people come in new and be fairly reasonable people and just turn into pricks, you know, with just in a few months, just, oh, I hate this place and everybody in it and I don't want to try. And, and, there are some people in prison who can't be taught anything or, or don't want to learn or don't want to do better, but there's an equal number of people who really could benefit from somebody saying, Hey, look, you know, you, you do have value. Yeah. You, you messed up, you broke the law and you got caught and here you are now, but you know what? This doesn't have to be the end of the line for you. There are, there are things that you are eligible to be successful and there are things that you can do. Um, let me show you, let me show you how, let me show you this thing that, that, that maybe you might enjoy. Um, and I think that has more value, and I hope I'm living proof of that. I think that has more value than just warehousing people and then shoving them out the door and hoping for the best. Yeah, I think that that's a really, really important point for a couple different reasons. Um, you have this large segment of the population who, when they think of inmates, you know, people who have messed up and end up in prison, they kind of think, you know, it should be terrible. It should be. Uh, a messy experience, but they're not thinking they're logically. They're not thinking it through where most of those people are going to be released back into society. Right. Um, so you want them to be rehabilitated. You want them to learn a skill. You want them to be able to contribute. Like you said, add some value, learn some skills. So when they get out, they're able to do something and they're able to contribute to society to, uh, to make life better. It's. I mean, people just don't think it through. And then on on a part of like the uh, the people working there, the uh, the COs, um, it's it it can't be fun to work in a prison. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it's really tough, um, sure. tough life. And I mean, going from you were just talking about the food they're eating. The food they're eating probably isn't that much different than what the inmates are eating, unless in your case, if you're, if you're the one cooking, then it's then it's a lot right. better, at least on the baking side. But sure. that's a tough one to fix too. To make it so, you know, you don't have, you know, COs who are just making life even more difficult on, on everyone around them. But Right. Yeah, they go through. And, I, and I've, I've heard stories to where, you know, police and COs and, you know, they get screwed over by the same system pretty often, too. It's not it's not like these people are uh, the villains causing all the problems. I mean, the, the system as a whole affects everybody negatively, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um it, it, it certainly is. I can't speak from experience, but I, I would imagine that it certainly is a difficult job to have. And it was even difficult for me in this, in this small little bit of experience that I had with, you know, people, there was a limited, there was a, a certain number of people that I could have in my class and a good number of them came in and I realized they didn't want to learn how to bake. They just wanted to steal chocolate and stuff so they could sell it back on the block and get high. Yeah. Well, that's not what I'm trying to do, man. You know, like, Go waste the cops' time. I'm an inmate. I'm here trying to help you. Yeah. Um, 
And I would imagine that from a CEO standpoint, they see that all day, every day. That's got to be really frustrating because it certainly pissed me off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, but there, there needs to be a, a point where the CEOs aren't taught and, and trained early on to view every inmate as the enemy and an us against them kind of mentality because that's not really the way it's supposed to be. And even if even if you adopt that because it become habit for you, you're creating a huge problem in that when you teach these people that they're no good and they're, and they're bad news and they're not fixable, they're going to go out and act that way. Um, I, I, I firmly believe that a lot of people don't succeed when they get out because they don't know how, like I've never done anything legitimate that was worthwhile or real before the only thing that I've ever been good at is selling dope or doing this or doing nothing or just being a bum. So I'll just go back to my default, what always worked before and continue doing that. Cause it's all I know how to do. Yeah. Um, unless, unless somebody helps mentors or, or provides some resources for somebody to, to, to let them believe in a very real way that you are eligible for these things. If you, if you put yourself into it, you know, successful business owners are not just the super rich people that you see on TV or Shark Tank or or, or whatever. Um, there, you you can be that too, a hundred percent. You know, have have that kind of confidence because you should. Um, it, it would it it would take a, a special breed of CEO, a lot like the one that I worked under, um, and a lot of them to to bring about that change. But it can happen. They can happen for sure. Yeah. Um, um, so let's let's uh, talk about inside out cookies. Um, <clears throat> getting into you know how how you went from getting out of prison to to starting uh, this bakery. So first, like, w- w- when did you get out, and then what was your your process to to opening up inside out cookies? So yeah, so I I turned down early release twice um, to to remain in my program. So one of them, the, the prison offered this drug class, they called it, but it was actually a residential thing. Um, they would give you a year off your sentence. If you moved into this special part of the prison and took this, I think it was like an eight or 10 month class. Um, but while you took that class, you weren't allowed to have another job. So if I, mm-hmm. if I moved into that, I would have had to quit baking and quit doing what I was doing. And I said, you know what, by, by this time I've been sober five years. I don't really need drug treatment and what I'm doing over here is very real. So you just keep, you just keep your sentence reduction. I'm going to stay over here yeah. and every, nobody could believe like what in the world is wrong with you? Nothing. I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, COVID came uh, maybe a year before my release and that changed everything. Although when the rest of the prison was locked down and not able to do what, what they wanted to do, I still went to work every day because the cops still had to eat. Um, so my experience was that was with that was very different. Um, I think at some point, some politician was pressuring the BOP to start letting people out and they, it seems like the BOP just made up a random list of people and said, okay, let these ones out so we can satiate this politician, whoever it was, Mm -hmm. uh, this is probably the attorney general or whoever, I don't know, but, um, uh, I was on that list. And so I get back, I was, I was, uh, uh, by then we were working two and three shifts, uh, trying to keep everybody fed. And they said, Hey, pack your stuff. You're going home. I'm like, I don't want to, <laughs> I have no plan in place. I have nowhere to go. Yeah. Everything out in the outside world is locked down and closed. I'd get out of here and go do what? 
no job, be broke. Like I, I'm in here doing something worthwhile. I'm keeping people fed. I'm showing up every day. I don't want to go out there and sit on my ass on the sofa and wonder what, what tomorrow is going to bring. I'll stay here. And that pissed off a lot of people. I had a lieutenant curse me out like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Why would you want to stay here? All I can tell you is I know what I'm doing. I'm going to yeah. stay here. <laughs> so uh, I turned down early release again and I stayed. Now, of course, I was only eight months from the door at that point anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't like I was choosing a life sentence over freedom or anything. But um, So I got out uh, December 18th, I believe, very shortly before Christmas. And uh, went through all the usual freaked outness that everybody gets when they when they get out of prison, I'm, I'm sure. It took me hours to get home because we had to stop at every exit so I could throw up because I was car sick from having not been in a car for so long. Um, and I I had been working so diligently at, at what I did for so long, I didn't really know anything else. In fact, when I had to stop cooking... I was cooking every day at home, more food than my mom and I, my mom and I could eat. So this is what I do, man. I just to cook. Um, I needed to close some doors. So when I started my crime, I was in college taking classes and I wanted to finish that. So uh, as soon as the next spring semester started, I enrolled in college. Um, I had a couple of, a couple of credits, but I finished a, a two year degree in one year. I had a 3.9 GPA. I had a C in my accounting class because I hadn't used a computer in so long and I didn't know Excel, but I got an A in everything else. Um, and while I was doing that, I was planning for the business, which I knew I wanted that to be baking related because it, it would be silly not to, but it, the world was still very much affected by COVID. So it needed to be an online thing. So mm-hmm. I was I was on the internet looking at some online cookie companies and watching in awe at some of them, how fast they went from these tiny little one or two person operations to these big multi-million dollar companies in just a few years. I was like, that's what I want. Um, I'm not quite there yet, but um, uh, I started modeling what I saw some of them doing and came up with my own unique product that I call it a cookie. It's closer to a brownie, but you know, they're, they're round and they're cookie ish. Um, But something that I felt could compete with the other companies that I was looking at. Um, So on the, I, I graduated on the same day that it was my release date a year before. And I launched the website for the company on that day as well. Um, and started doing online sales. I'm going to bring up just here for people watching on video, just so they can see these cookies, your website, your website is awesome with this photography here. Um, <laughs> Thank you. People who are watching the video on YouTube or rumble, you can see it here. Or if you're listening on audio, go to our YouTube and um, watch, watch this video here. You, you can see, um, just the these look so 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 good. Or just go to the website insideoutcookie.com. Um, just really really impressive stuff. And you said that no, it's thanks. all it's all online orders right now, pretty much. But you're also doing some so, events in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I and, do events. Yeah. So I can't quite. I financed the whole thing with money that I saved up in prison, which wasn't significant. I, I did okay in the stock market uh, towards the end there in, in COVID, but uh, when, when when COVID was recovering, yeah. but uh, uh, it still wasn't a whole bunch of money. So my growth has been kind of slow because it's it's just me. Um, but I started doing online, which is very easy to start. Uh, and I thought about, okay, well, I see these people doing these local markets. Why can't I do that? So I signed up for two local farmers markets and a couple of bigger festivals and I enjoyed those so much more because I actually got to interact with the customers versus online sales. I see an order, fill up a box, mail it. And that's the end of that. Mm -hmm. 
um, I'm still not completely comfortable with social media, uh, although I'm getting a lot better than I was uh, with, you know, putting making reels with myself in them. Most of my marketing has been just pictures of the product and that's a little bit dry and sterile sometimes. I mean, yes, the pictures don't look delicious, but you can see delicious pictures anywhere. I need, I really need to do a better job of putting my own personality into the company, which is mm-hmm. um, I'm starting to do now. Um, but once I, once I saw the, uh, the potential for the, for the in-person events, I pursued that quite a bit more. Um, so this, the beginning of my second year was in January. I started booking every festival and fair that I could, that I felt like I could fit into. Um, I think I might've done 30 or 40 this summer. Um, I only had two of them not go very good because of weather and stuff like that, but I've been able to grow the company, uh, and also pay off almost all of my debt this year. Wow. Um, from doing the in-person, uh, events along with the online. So, um, I don't think I could possibly, expect better results in my second year in business than that. Um, I'm, sc- I'm starting to scale up for the third time um, to increase capacity for next year. Uh, so I will be doing it. It's, it, it's my goal to have an actual retail store. Um, but the problem that I have now is I can't manage the bakery and also open up a store every single day. So I want to get to a point where I can actually hire somebody to, to, uh, either manage the bakery or run the store as a, as a store manager and then have both and hopefully have multiple stores at a certain point. But mm-hmm. one, one for now is the goal. So, yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. And, uh, just to be, to accomplish this much in just two years, especially during, you know, the going through the weird times of, of COVID. I mean, very, very impressive, um, to be able to do that. A lot of people listening out there, you know, I feel like an episode like this can give some inspiration. Um, not everybody listening has been to prison, and that's that's fine. That's good. You don't have to go to prison to get this, sure. to, to that's a good thing, be inspired. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can just take some of this inspiration away. And if you have something you know that's been holding you back out there um, that you've been thinking about, you know, starting a business, um, you can do it. I mean, you can do it. The first step is actually just taking action, making a list, and uh, and knocking those things out one thing at a time. So I want to thank you for coming on the show, Nick. Before I let you go, if you could just once again plug, um, plug Inside Out Cookie and any your. I don't think you said your social media, so people can follow you there as well. Sure, we're at uh, InsideOutCookie.com uh, is the website, or I am also Inside Out Cookie on both Instagram or Facebook, or uh, IO Cookie Co on Twitter. Although Twitter is not as uh, good as it used to be, I don't think, um, but. Uh, yeah, but both both my both my primary socials are Facebook and, and uh, Instagram, so they're both Inside Out Cookie, uh, and uh, yeah, you can or- you can order off of any of them. Of course, the website is is, is the easiest. Or if you're local in Pennsylvania, uh, look for me at festivals and fairs. Uh, I just finished Bloomsburg Fair. I try to do everything that I can that I can squeeze into. So uh, yeah, come check us out for sure. All right, Nick Freed, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. All right. That was my interview with Nick Freed. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Hopefully you uh, are going to check out Inside Out Cookie and uh, place an order. I know that uh, that I am. I was looking through the website earlier today. And honestly, once you look at it, it's pretty hard not to order. Um, you know, stories like this, like Nick's, are incredibly important for a couple of different reasons. One, 
to learn about you know, the issues, the problems we have in our justice system, learn about things like like Ghost Dope. And two, just for flat out inspiration to see, to see someone else who is chasing their dreams, who has overcome obstacles um, and really, you know, using that energy, using that motivation uh, in our own lives to, to achieve goals. So hopefully you all got something out of it. If you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast. If you want more content, content join on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com. I'll be back next week with another awesome guest. In the meantime, always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Burning.